Welcome to Gin and Topic. Woo! Series three was another really long one. And we couldn't include all of the conversations in the final episodes. But there are bits that we cut out that just seem too good to waste. So Ben's been saving them for us. And he's put them together in this little extra. Enjoy. And if you've got any gin left, oh, have a glass for us. Because we've just got 14 empty bottles. (laughs) Fancy a bottle of gin? Well, we've got one to give away. Celebrating the end of Series 3 and our birthday last week, we are running a competition to win a bottle of Ironbark. All you have to do is leave us a review... Take a screenshot and share it with us on social media at Topic Gin or on email hello at ginandtopic.com by Friday the 15th of April. And you'll be popped into the raffle to win the bottle of Ironbark. And if you want to know what it tastes like, just listen to our tasting episode to find out more. Ask the really childish question I like no, to ask on. everyone who works in space things. Where do you stand on aliens? Oh, oh. You've got to ask. You've got to ask. It's a waste <laughs> if you don't. Um, I think it's an interesting question because when I first, when I was studying astronomy, and I, I wasn't a kid who was like really into astronomy. I didn't yeah. have a telescope. I didn't always want to go to the planetarium. It was only when I got to university I really got into astronomy. And it was then mm. that this question kind of came up and I was really surprised at the answer, which was, well, it, of course they must be out there. Like there, there is, yeah. it's very, very likely that there is life out there mm-hmm. because how could we possibly be the only place in the universe mm-hmm. yeah. that could host life? You know, we're one planet of, you know, of, of eight planets in our solar system. So I just had a little mind blast. Like, oh, there eight? Yeah, there are eight. That's not your thing. You do way further than that. You're allowed to get that wrong. Thank you. Thank you. Is it such a small number? <laughs> um, yeah, eight planets in our solar system, a hundred billion stars in our galaxy, the Milky Way, all of yeah. them with planets likely going around them, trillions of galaxies mm. in the observable universe. Yeah. And then who knows what's beyond the observable beyond. universe? Yeah uncountable um the odds of there being somewhere that could host life I think are extraordinarily high just given the numbers it's just a numbers game um Mm -hmm. but big but I don't think we will ever know I don't think we will ever come into contact with any other life I mean that's 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 a bold statement maybe you know (laughs) next year they'll find some fish on a a moon of Jupiter who knows maybe you'll find them maybe you'll be looking at the lights and be like hold on a moment (laughs) quickly delete that podcast from the internet (laughs) no um the time scales as we've talked about the the distance scales and the time scales are just crazy so if we imagine there was a a nice civilized uh, alien population on a planet going around a star Mm -hmm. in Andromeda the nearest neighboring large galaxy Mm -hmm. to us and they built a some radio communication system they're like let's let's send a signal off down towards the Milky Way and Mm -hmm. you know see if anyone picks it up it would take two and a half million years for that signal to get here yeah. And then another yeah. two and a half million years for us to send a, a reply. Mm-hmm. Um, five million years is quite a long time in, in evolutionary 
scale. And if you think about it, we've only recently started, you know, right. doing the whole space thing. Exactly. Yeah. So realistically, we're babies. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but and also, as you were saying about what you can see, you know, if you look towards our planet from wherever there may be life, they might be looking at it going, oh, that's a pretty star. Yeah, yeah, looks nice. And then it's like, oh no, it's a planet. Oh yeah, pretty planet. Not much going on. Yeah, seems pretty quiet. <laughs> Can't yeah. see anything. Yeah. <laughs> and we can't even begin to start looking at planets that far away. You know, yeah. exoplanets yeah. that we talked about, we're looking at them in our own galaxy. And, and even then, we don't have very much information about them. We don't know... Um, what their surfaces are like. We don't know what their atmospheres are like. We're just yeah. beginning to get the technology where we might be able to start answering those questions. Um, so I guess there's a nice, you know, why should we study space? Well, one thing is to find out things like that, um, yeah. you know, to start addressing those questions. Yeah. So even if I'm not, I'm not specifically looking for aliens, I think it's, <laughs> you know, it plays into the but whole... But if you bump into them, you know, yeah, definitely, not definitely tell that. people, yeah. Yeah. You're like, oh, by the way, just so happened to see an alien earlier. And I'm like, oh, okay, sure. You, 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 your body shape, that is very, very uh, genetically influenced. Mm. So there's very little environmental influence into your body shape. This is what we're talking about, your spoon, guitar, pear. <laughs> because if you go, so, so just have a look surreptitiously. Don't get hit and, and blame me. <laughs> but if you actually look at families wandering about, yeah. okay, you talk to me, for example, your brother looking like your dad, et cetera, et cetera. Look at the shapes. And you might differ. You, you, you might obviously differ. You could be, but, but the body shape is very, very inherited. Mm-hmm. So that's the first thing. And that has very little to do with the environment. And the other thing, which which people think about, is where you lose fat from. You know, when you go for your booty burn or whatever it's called, you go, you can't I'm gonna, spot lose I, fat. You cannot you lose can't fat spot for just lose one fat. place. <laughs> you cannot do a booty burn. You can do as many setups oh, as possible. You lose, so unfortunately, annoyed. you lose weight from where your genes tell you you lose mm-hmm. from first. Mm-hmm. So all these booty burn or whatever, whatever other Legs, gym classes you actually have. You can make, you can definitely tone, you can definitely build muscle oh, in, yeah. in the specific areas. Yes, because because you, you are actually, but your total, and that will burn calories mm-hmm. and that will therefore shape you up. But you cannot choose. It is almost impossible to choose where your weight comes off first. Mm-hmm. Mm. Otherwise, <laughs> I wouldn't have this. My, my wife says I have chip, chipmunk cheeks, <laughs> which, which, which I do. See, you see? Which I do. And I can't lose it from there. It's the last place the weight comes off is my cheeks. Mm. That's when you know that I'm really, really, you know, it's just, it's terrible. <laughs> there we go. That's brilliant. I'm not trying to think and where I put mine. What, your chipmunk cheeks? Where did you put them? <laughs> so you don't have chipmunky cheeks. Where do you, yeah, where, where is your, and this is a very personal question. Where do you think your preferred fat store is? I where do you gain weight first? I would Im- Where do you gain weight first? I think my size... And maybe my chin, because I see, admire my chins. I love see, mine's, my chins. Mine's really quite obvious. Yours is like there. You are yeah. shaped like a Pixar mum. Absolutely, I am. Yeah. I am. What, like you, like The Incredibles. Yeah, like, like, like that's that, exactly that, that. it. It's exactly it. <laughs> so hard to find in a field. Yes, I mean, so arrowheads are something that they find you read maybe read a lot about in America. There's, I mean, paleo Indians sort of synonymous with all these 
these really cool different arrowheads people pick up, it's very illegal, all the rest. It's a big problem in archaeology. But they're very recognisable, and actually that makes them very vulnerable. So it's really the things that don't look like something. They might be harder to find, but there's so much more of that. Because if you think about the amount of stone that gets chipped off, the waste stone, when you're trying to make something recognisable and pretty and useful, you've got all these sharp-edged pieces Mm. that people were actually using because... It's, it's a lot sharper when you've just flaked it straight off rather than sort of you essentially blunt the edge when you when you shape it by chipping a bit more. Um, so we have to be very careful about actually what we cherry pick from our, we call them assemblages, collections of stone. Um, but in terms of recognisable things, arrowheads are this, I guess if you're sort of thinking about big developments in terms of how we use tools, you've got the hand axe that you hold, you've got the spear that you'd, you'd halved onto a stick, And then you've got the arrow that you then project into the air. And we don't really know when arrows were invented. Some people say around 60,000 years ago, which is, I mean, it's pretty old. Um, But, and they do all sorts of really cool experiments where they set up um, arrows and fire them at carcasses or jelly and uh, do science. Um, It looks like a lot of fun. (laughs) That's one thing we do get to do quite a lot of in archaeology is experimental replication. I mean, it's basically messing around like like Stone Age people, Um, butchering carcasses with stone tools we've made and then measuring how much wear you get on a stone tool if you scrape a hide 20 times and all sorts of, of... fun things like that yeah. and I could imagine that it would be like you know you'd have your perfectionist who would be making his arrowheads and I, well, I say he could be female I don't know uh, um they making uh <laughs> arrowheads and you've got the the perfectionist is there going wow look at me I've made this me I got a bit off the floor and I attached it to a stick. There you go, done. That's because you are a, I'm going to do this entire project the night before kind of person. Whereas (laughs) I am a, here's my spreadsheet. Here's all of my reading. Here's my colour-coded notes. Now I can work on the thing. (laughs) Something that I really love when we're we're studying stone tools in depth. So we get a lot of information from cores. So that's the lump of stone that you chip things off. And um, you can see sometimes, I mean, rocks have flaws in them. They understood the, the, the rocks very well, but sometimes there's just something that isn't going to budge. And you can see where someone has been hitting it and hitting it, just saying, oh, for <laughs> just, just work. Just do it. And you can, I you do can that sometimes when things don't work and I just sit there going, come on. <laughs> exactly. I mean, I, I think, although you can't really put it in your publication, <laughs> it's, it's something that we see. And it's it's really, I find it very engaging when you can sort of, see that person in the past who's you know who can't get it to work um what would happen what would happen if she put one on her face (laughs) that the starfish won't be happy will become very hard and probably nothing more that's so sad (laughs) and you'd be lying there just going come on starfish do something like no he's not happy don't do it with a sea urchin yeah because they're kind of like spiky that was me pretending to be spiky I don't know what that was Mm. they are protecting some um, areas in Italy sea urchins because people are using them to eat um, gonads that are actually like caviar yeah okay so you open them and you eat the internal part that are actually gonads 
And so... Yeah. <laughs> Ugh, put me um, right off my dinner. You're not into sea urchin gonads? No, <laughs> no. Not my kind of thing. Not into caviar either. Mm. Doesn't no, do it for me. I'm not fancy Doesn't, enough for it. I think we should move back away from <laughs> gonads and caviar. As an adult, when you do read some things that you that are a bit strange, if you'd have read it when you was young, when you were younger, you do have that notion that you would probably have found it quite exciting and like, oh, isn't it scandalous? And then, as an adult, when you read it, you have a different point of view. One book that I say that definitely, definitely happens with, and I did read it for the first time as an adult, so I can't say completely what I would think of as a as a teenager. But I know I watched similar sort of stories where this happened and it's called um doing it and it's by melvin burgess and in it there is a student having sex with his teacher no uh, no no and i was like no, I, I want to rip no. my own eyes out i want to rip my own eye like don't want to read this like it's really horrible and it sets your teeth on yeah. edge it really really does but mm. I also i can see how that has been written because actually the the, the male character sees starts to see that that is wrong in in it and he wants to get Mm. away from her and he sees that she's a bit weird and and so the cat fortunately the character does develop but it was a hard read Mm. I I didn't I was like I don't don't know if I'm going to actually get through this I think I might have to put the book down because it was it was not Mm. good um but it was an interesting way to do things and I know there were stories where I mean I, I mean I was in my 20s when I did actually watch this book Pretty Little Liars has a story that's similar where aria is with with the the teacher but actually Mm -hmm. the teacher is not that much older than her out of school context it wouldn't be weird but it's the school context it's that balance of power it's a teacher and a pupil that does change Mm -hmm. the whole the Mm -hmm. whole thing so Mm -hmm. that's that in itself is is an interesting one when that's brought into to a narrative and then (laughs) the other one is more of an anecdotal thing um when we were 15 uh my friend's one friend my best friend in particular who I am still best friends with actually um decided we were going to write diaries and I I think I lasted about a week Mm. (laughs) I was not the person to stick to it she lasted about three months I have to say so she did quite well and she it was in this fluffy diary book of you know around the late 90s it was great Mm -hmm. and um like a few years later when we were a bit older she pulled it out and I remember while she was walking around her house doing the laundry and doing little bits I was reading her diary to her because we had made, she had decided that we needed to write diaries for each of us to read. So there is an element that, you know, has been a bit performative in Mm. how she's written it. But then there are also things that actually she didn't, she wasn't able to filter. And um, I, we were laughing so much because obviously it reminded us of, of these like stupid, the stupid things that we used to say or do. So reading the things it was it was like well it was actually reaching back into my own adolescence so it was quite Mm. funny when I read uh, my friend's diary I was like oh god it makes me it gives me Angus Thong's vibes it's really weird Mm -hmm. like reading this and I used to say to her you need to write another diary I know you don't want to and you say you've not got time because you know you've got children and (laughs) this that and the other Mm. but you need to write a diary because in a few years I'll want to read it because it's Mm, brilliant and like look at the joy we're kind of getting from this and these mm-hmm. are quite significant periods in our life and um 
I used to also say like, oh, I, I just, I love your diary so much. I want it. And she actually gave it me as a Christmas present one year because I was like, I need this diary. And I keep saying to her, I was like, you know, your diary is my favorite book to read. Like it literally <laughs> is my favorite book. She's like, it's so weird. <laughs> so you plug all these numbers in and the, the volume of the Earth's ocean is about um, a 12 followed by 17 zeros. Good. Wow. In, in meters That's cubed. That's quite a few. Um, so just just as as you had said earlier, this if if the river was a shit ton, this is like a mega fuck ton <laughs> on the scale. Technical term, mega fuck ton. <laughs> yeah. yeah, loving this scale. So so that's the volume of the ocean, and we know how much a single kettle. You've said three yeah. liters per kettle, but you've yeah. got sixty million kettles. So you can combine yeah. those two numbers. Oh God, I'm gonna have to do this now. Let me just figure this out so that's because i've got to get the units right for you so <laughs> this is it's not my job to the minus three times six times ten to the seven all right nearly done that's 18 times 10 this is like watching a really extreme four. countdown <laughs> yeah <laughs> okay okay i think i think i've got right so you're going to need to run according to our calculations you're going to need to Get all your 60 million kettles filled mm -hmm. to the top with three litres in each kettle. Yeah. And you're going to have to do that about um, 10 million million times. <laughs> oh, okay, wow. so we're almost there now. So now I just need to know how long does it take to boil a kettle? To boil the we... kettle? Well, again, we're back to our kettle because our kettle Pretty to boil well. takes a good... Average. Well, good what, what, but it also depends what temperature you've got it on because ours goes on the hob. Do you ever put it on anything? Uh, let's not get sidetracked. You have to put it on P to make it faster. So, on average, because I would say our type of kettle is unusual. It is, yes. I would say, on average, a kettle may... Maybe a minute? Just... just, just Adverts. Okay. There you go. It's adverts, isn't it? People go off and make a make a yeah, but the drink kettle in boils. An advert, so they but they've the also got other stuff afterwards because you've got the milk and, and the whatever tea. if you're making a tea. So, so I how would long's an advert. Well, an, an advert thirty seconds these days. Well, Sarah. an advert break. Well, about five minutes if you're Channel Four. If you're ITV, it's slightly different. So if you're five minutes and you've got to make your tea in that time, then let's go two minutes to boil. Okay, the two minutes to boil a kettle. Okay. Okay. All right. Two minutes to boil a kettle. <laughs> Right, so if we combine all of this, I think I can possibly figure out what the answer is about how long it would take to boil the the, the uh, Can't the wait to go back to your class and go, right, so it had these two yeah. rhythms <laughs> All right, so we've got, right, we've got the mass of the... I'm just trying to get my head around this. We've got that. You're we've trying to get your head two around minutes, it. Two minutes per kettle. I've got to run it how many times? We've got to run it 10 to the 13 times. So I need to know. Are you even using a calculator for this? No. Uh, oh! <laughs> um, I. Okay, I think it's somewhere between 10 and 100 million years, I think is the answer. So that's how well, long it's it would good take. Thing we don't need to do it, isn't wow. it? Somewhere between, yeah, <laughs> somewhere between ten and a hundred million years, 
I think, according so to your numbers. So how much energy are you now using? Oh, don't. Okay. <laughs> We're not doing that. Oh, no, you can figure that out. You just need to, you just, well, we know how many times we're running the kettle, so you just need to know how much energy per time. You can, you can do all kinds of fun things with these questions. You can keep going forever. You can just, exactly. Right. Sorry, we're like the misbehaving kids at the back of the class. We're like, pine resin, let's go. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, that reminds me of all chemistry classes, actually, because I did just play with matches. And there was at one point we used to flick the matches, but um, (laughs) one of mine went onto the cupboard and we all sat there rigid as we could see the smoke coming off the dusty top of the cupboard. And we're like, didn't do anything. Didn't you can tell anything. we went to school at very different times because we weren't allowed to have the matches. Because the of teacher, us. Because <laughs> of you. We went to entirely different schools, firstly, we so also, no. But did you also, with the Bunsen burner, when you had, you were like, you're going to put things in the tube to do experiments we just put anything else prit stick was always the best we one. didn't put it in the we tube it we in. would Burn directly it. hold it onto the flame on the end of our pens <laughs> <laughs> now that may be why Ofsted didn't love my school it may be why very few people in my year got their chemistry GCSE I don't have a chemistry GCSE See, and but <laughs> what I learned from so many of these podcasts is Doing that kind of behaviour means that you don't get the results and you then don't go into that kind of career. But you had the natural curiosity to try it. But it seems that anyone that went into the career end up doing those kinds of experiments just for fun. (laughs) Ah, I see you've met chemists. (laughs) Yes! (laughs) So if you sort of break it down to just the chemistry, um, just briefly for a second... (laughs) just the real simple bit well it, but this actually is going to be quite simple so you basically have like a, a very small number of categories of chemicals that you want so you want something like rna or dna something mm. like that we won't worry about exactly what but something like that mm. you want some proteins and you want mm-hmm. some lipids and you probably want some sugars mm. that's mm-hmm. four sets of things now those things, because they're sort of, you know, the, the molecules are very different shapes and they behave in very different ways, it's sort of easy to assume, oh, well, they wouldn't, like, form together. They, mm. You'd you mm. never just be able to have, like, some primordial soup-type melting pot and they would just all form in it. That's ridiculous. Mm. Um, except that, actually, it turns out that they kind of do. And, <laughs> and this is, like, one of the big surprise. This is, like, the, this sort yeah. of massive surprise from the last 10 years or so that... I think hasn't quite sunk in for a lot of yeah. people. But, I, but to me, I think I think it's one of the biggest um, discoveries. Mm. Um, there's a number of different ways that you can do this, a number of sort of starting chemicals that you can, mm. can go from. Mm-hmm. One of them is slightly surprising, which is cyanide. Oh. Uh, and, this is, and this sort of immediately comes as like a, wait, what? Yeah. <laughs> first of all, cyanide okay. is poison. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Life begins, life ends. The thing <laughs> is, thing? cyanide is common. Right, this is the first thing. So mm, cyanide, mm. Um, so it's incredibly common, and it's yeah, you, know, you can find it in outer space. So mm. on Earth, and the thing, the reason that cyanide is so poisonous to life uh, is that it's really reactive. It likes to sort of you know meet other chemicals and like transform and sort of combine mm. with them. So you can make all kinds of different mm. things out of cyanide. Um, the other thing that has sort of often been used as a related chemical called formamide, which is a 
some thick, gloopy liquid. <laughs> Glad we're back there again. Yeah, we are, yeah. See, I I told you we would never leave the thick, gloopy, <laughs> thick, gloopy liquids behind. Um, and there have been some, some amazing experiments where people have shown that you can take these things and sort of depending on how they, how you treat them, you can get mm. like the building blocks of RNA, or you can get amino acids, or you can get lipids. There's kind of, there's a one, there was a wonderful study that came out a couple of years ago that sort of summarizes all of this beautifully. So there was a, um, a researcher called Sarah Simkuch, who was, uh, I think, at the, the Warsaw Academy of Sciences. And what she did was to pull together decades and decades of work on prebiotic chemistry, all those different experiments mm. that people did trying to make one thing or another. Mm. And she put it all into a computer program so you, she could see um, essentially the the part, all the, how all the different reactions link together. So, you know, someone would have yeah. gone, oh, you know, I've got, you know, carbon dioxide and something, something and whatever, and I managed to make this amino acid. And somebody else, you know, I've made this sugar. How do these reactions all sort of connect up together? Cool. Yeah, yeah. What? Yeah, if you make this thing, what can you then do? What can you then do? What can you then do? And she create and she and her colleagues drew up this huge reaction network, all things that are, are have been shown to work. And basically, at the start of it, she had six very simple chemicals. It's things like carbon dioxide and water. Mm-hmm. Again, mm-hmm. Nothing, nothing that you would sort of be surprised to find on a planet. And at the other end was basically pretty much anything you could want uh, in order to make life. <laughs> they all just sort of come out of this network. Yeah, you want your amino acids? Fine, you can have them. Mm-hmm. If you want nucleotides, which are the building blocks of RNA and DNA, you can have those too. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can have your lipids, whatever it is. They put mm. thousands and thousands of things all come out of this network. So it's like a scientist version of Little Alchemy. And um, going back to it, because one of my favourite ones was if you combine space and time, what you did you get? You got a TARDIS. Okay, but then nice. it disappeared. It was just like a little bonus Easter egg. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> Actually, I think you got a Time Lord and a TARDIS. You got both of them. I love that your brain can't let this go. It can't because this is all I'm visualising throughout all of this discussion. I can see it all happening in this little app. Yeah, it's brilliant. So you're no longer looking at teeth. So you're you're no longer a dentist for the dead. I'm not, no. Um, and now working in the Science Centre in Cambridge. Do you do a lot of work with all the research that you did, or have you just moved much more into general science communication? Uh, as I'm still in touch, I'm still in touch with um, those who are carrying on from what I've done, um, and some of the work that I'm doing and papers involving work that I'm doing, I'm still involved with. Mm-hmm. Yeah, as you say, I'm not doing any of the active research now. I kind of mm-hmm. uh, I get to come in and sort of edit and. No more dressing questions. up in all that suit. No, no more of the suit. <laughs> no more of the suit. Um, but yeah, I, I keep in touch with it, particularly because it is the direct continuation of what I was doing. So that's you know, yeah. really interesting. Um, but day to day, I'm very much just in the, the general science communication here with Cambridge Science Centre, which is mm-hmm. really cool. I mean, I really loved this work. It was amazing. It was amazing to, to spend that time, to have that opportunity to spend that time mm-hmm. um, working mm-hmm. on it. But it's then really cool to kind of take all of the sort of other skills that you learn alongside trying to do that work and then getting the chance to kind of go in and go, okay, here's a, here's a show about getting into space and the forces involved in getting into space. You've got to present this. <laughs> so I get to learn about all kinds of different areas, which is really cool. Yeah, yeah. cool. Really cool. Yeah. Very cool. You just, yeah, occasionally on the sly 
scraping a little too <laughs> as they walk in. Let's see what you've been eating. No. <laughs> no. 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 No, there's a lot of ethical issues. <laughs> yeah, back to the ethical concerns. Massive there. Yeah. There's maybe the seed of a citizen science project, you know, because you know, we, we go out to schools and, and visit schools and sometimes we go there for, we go, we go to like high schools for a week and set up a, a mini version of the science centre with our exhibits and our shows and our workshop um, and everything. You know, in in the secondary school. So maybe maybe if there's some research oh, going be on, be very careful with secondary school children. <laughs> you don't want to know what's in their mouths. <laughs> that is possibly the key point. Yeah. Mm. Is primary school yeah, any better? Yeah, though? That's the. Is, I mean, primary school is just like. Well, you know that it's just everything. Yeah, it's just like oh, mud, mm. cool, yum, interesting. But you get to high school, like. Should I report that? <laughs> <laughs> the question, Jean, what is the impact of crayons on the microbiome is, is primary school? And mm-hmm. yeah, okay. I'm taking you, okay, I'm, yeah. I'm going to recede my citizen science. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I would. I would. By the way, I have to tell something else uh, to uh, Anya. Yeah. Uh, but uh, in my, uh, I, I don't know what is equivalent, but it's probably equivalent to GCSE scores. Uh, I got... Uh, uh, just pass marks in maths myself. No way. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, so you know, this is yeah. This is you know. Uh, I never thought I would do anything to do with maths yeah. ever in my life. Brilliant. So, uh, so in India, <clears throat> the the pass marks uh, in a very important uh, exam, which is when you turn sixteen, is you have to do some exam, which is most important in your life. Uh, the pass marks is uh, you have to get thirty five out of hundred. Uh-huh. And I got 35. (laughs) Well done, though, 35. So one of the things that happens in the internet is called domain name service, DNS. Mm. This is the way that you turn, I don't know, let's take it www.google.com. Or Um, ginandtopic.com. Or ginandtopic.com. Sorry, (laughs) ginandtopic. Plug, plug, plug. That web server will be running on a web server, on a server sitting somewhere in a dusty data center in the middle of nowhere. I was going to say Milton Keynes, but, you know, it'll be somewhere like that. Um, And that server will have an address. It'll have a number, a bit like a phone number. So you need to convert. When you ask for ginandtopic.com, you need to convert that to an IP address. Mm. That is called Domain Name Service, DNS. If that doesn't work, then most of the rest of the internet it does doesn't work. work. And actually, it does work. <laughs> and actually, there was, a big, there was a big problem a few weeks ago when the DNS system did collapse and uh, several of the very, very large provi- um, companies, customers weren't able to get to their network. Until the mid-'80s, that DNS server was run by one person <laughs> sitting in an office in Menlo Park, California. It wasn't his main job. He was a volunteer. Wow. So there is this idea. All this stuff, all this stuff we just take absolutely for granted. Yes. There are all these people doing it, but they're not even being paid for it. This guy, so he was a research scientist that was interested. He works in a place called Park, Palo Alto Research Centre, which is a branch of Xerox Communications. Um, And he invented this idea for converting... So he came up with the idea in, in mid-70s and said, you know, I can't expect people to remember 
8.8.8.8, which is Google's IP address. I, I need to have people say google.com and convert that to the address to allow the network to connect it. So he'd come up with the idea. Because he'd come up with the idea, he got stuck with it. So he was stuck with it with, with Be careful years what you wish for. <laughs> and, you know, there's, there's other people. There are specific names that you hear about um, that have developed things in the internet are still involved in either controlling them or adding pieces <laughs> to them or writing them. And it, it really has been this, this generation of, of people that have, have built things out of research. There is no one has said, let's build the internet. Yeah. Let's make this all work. Let's yeah. connect this. It's, it's been a, a gestation period, if you like. I'm imagining that poor guy now still in that room, but he's got a beard <laughs> that he could wrap his whole body yeah. in like a he blanket. Is warm. <laughs> and, yeah. and he's just been there going, I'm never going to get out. You've, you've, just, like, you've just reminded me that, that there is a term, coming back to the idea of the, the IETF being a bit of a den of hippies. Um, I should say I haven't got a beard, <laughs> but there is um, a name for people that have been in the IETF for a very, very long time and are... <laughs> are pretty seasoned and we call them the grey beards. <laughs> and almost all of them have got long grey beards. It's because they're never allowed out of their room, you know, they've still got to keep things going. And I also They've like, got to start the drumming. Yeah, exactly. absolutely. I think we've got a great grasp of the heart basics now and I'm going to take back to my lab and I'm going to name all the different parts of the heart. Yes! Um, so, so I'm going to force all my colleagues to call every bit of the heart different names. Oh, I'm so Simon. pleased. I'm so pleased. <laughs> one, of, one of my colleagues who left the lab last year, one of her parting gifts, she renamed all our fridges and freezers after dragons from Harry Potter. <gasps> Tell me there's a Norbert. There is a Norbert. Yes! Oh, my God, this is the best thing I've heard all day. But no, I think it was a... It's, the species of dragon, right? So it's a Norwegian uh, Ridgeback. It's no Norwegian Ridgeback, yeah. Yeah, nice. she went she I went like a Welsh nerd. green, personally, or maybe a Chinese fireball. <laughs> Do you want me to keep going? Because you know I could. <laughs> All of the dangerous chemicals are stored in the Hungarian horntail. Well, of course, as they should be. <laughs> oh, I've just had a nerd out moment. I'm very happy now. <laughs> <laughs> well, well done her as well. Yeah. I think that's a really good parting, so, parting yeah. gift. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah it, was, well, it was quite useful as well because otherwise it was just go to the, you know, the freezer in the lab that's behind the, 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 <laughs> the machine that's next to the other freezer. Not helpful. Just not helpful. <laughs> and I love that nobody had ever thought of naming them before <laughs> or even just giving them numbers. <laughs> It, it, it was surprising that we needed a solution to this problem. <laughs> oh. Excellent. When you start to study something, you don't study it in pregnant women and children and yeah, people yeah. who are at higher risk. You study, you know, in and so the, the first studies, which were done very, very rapidly, obviously, um, were not done in pregnant women. But... The, and now the CDC, only because you can't even tell you how many of like friends, mostly for their children who are now having children, I'm that old, um, <laughs> is, um, it, you know, should she get the vaccine? And um, so I was keeping up on it um, and actually have, the, have colleagues in the CDC. And the CDC has recommended it now. But even before yeah. that, um, there was quite a bit of indication that that 
you should have the vaccine um, for two reasons. One, um, women in the third trimester, pregnant in the third trimester that get COVID uh, seem to have higher risk of serious consequences. Mm. Yeah. So they were at higher, because recognizing that when you're pregnant and, and particularly that later part, your immune system is quite depressed. Um, mm. You know, I know that about pregnancy, but because it doesn't want you to, the mother to reject the, the foreign baby, your the yeah. mother's immune system is quite suppressed. Um, so uh, they're more, they were more at risk for serious COVID um, mm. and more and more at risk for death. So that was one, mm. they should get the vaccine. Two, um, if they had the vaccine and they'd had it at least, um, you know, a, a a few weeks before delivery, those antibodies that they had now created from the vaccine passed to the baby. And so, and that's important. And, Mm. you know, and so, and they didn't want, and there was all this stuff about separating moms and babies and not breastfeeding. And, you know, all of that was, was rubbish, but the breastfeeding part we had down very quickly, it was perfectly safe. um, And mothers shouldn't be separated from babies. Um, God, breastfeeding just, is always such an issue, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> just for everything, socially, medically, it just always comes up as a big, big issue. It's anyway, because boobs just, are there to be sexual, not oh. to do the thing they're meant to do. I know. It's, and that's, you know, we're trying to push breastfeeding in, you know, low and middle income countries um, is, uh, you know, because you know, the formula companies, but that's a whole, you know, push formula. That's a whole nother thing. But with regard to the vaccine and pregnancy, women should get vaccinated, probably not in their first trimester, but in their second and third trimester um, to protect themselves and to confer protection to the baby, recognizing that those antibodies last anywhere from in the baby that were shared from the mother um, from a a few months to almost a year. So like the, Mm. if, if the mother's immune to measles, whether it was vaccine or she had measles, that, um, immunity lasts about nine months in the baby Mm. up to a year. And so that's why you may not remember, but you get, you don't get the measles vaccine early. You get your measles vaccine when you're like nine months to a year old. And that's because if you give the vaccine early, um, those antibodies that are already there are going to eat the vaccine basically. Mm-hmm. And it yeah. won't, it won't, conf- it won't allow the baby to start to make their own um, antibodies yeah. to measles. Yeah. And so that passing of antibodies is, is also a really, really mm. good thing. So do me and Sarah like gin or do we like flavored vodka? <laughs> oh, we like gin. Well, I'm just checking. Well, no, but you think of all of the gins that we've had in all of the episodes so far. And we and always go, we always go, oh, yeah, that's a ginny gin. Yeah. And it's the juniper and the dryness of a London dry gin. So we're definitely in that gin, gin camp. And I would say even the Roku is a bit of a contemporary style. So it pushes it a little bit and maybe reduces the the juniper is still a gin juniper's still there don't worry but then we have some yeah we've tried some really bonkers gins waving my fingers in in the air well but i'm thinking back to nod nader nada what however you pronounce the p gin 
What yeah. did you make of it? Have you tried? You must have tried yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's completely out there. Um, it's, it's mushy peas in a glass. It is. It's, it's very vegetable. It's very green. It's so gross. <laughs> I couldn't drink it. And I love peas and it's an Irish I'm gin, sure. So I no, it's Scottish. It was oh, Scottish. was it Scottish? Oh, Which is why matter. we got the pronunciation wrong. Yeah. Um, but it was a gin I could probably only drink with fish and chips because then it would, <laughs> would be like I was having mushy I mean, peas in a glass. You know, is anyone... Yeah, I, I love fish and chips. really nice idea. Right? I love fish and chips. And, you know, most the time I have a beer with it but maybe I should be drinking uh, you know I'll be keep but there are weird and wonderful things like that don't know if it's wonderful (laughs) I mean the reason for making that was it was more around um, sustainability and to try and make Mm. a carbon positive gin and you know using peas and things like that so it was more of a kind of a an experiment and an expression of the times and seeing what was possible with gin. Mm. Um, so if you try their other products, they're not that batshit out there. Um, <laughs> I promise. <laughs> but yeah, because you're taking peas and then obviously distilling them rather than the usual grain and your neutral spirit, it's got more characteristics from the peas that it's made from. Yeah. And that's what you don't like. Yeah. It's yeah. that that then has yeah. the botanicals layered on top of it. And the, what you can throw any botanicals at that. It's just weird. And it's not going to help it for you because no. it's that base that you like a clean, you know, grain, neutral yeah. base. And we often talk about a gin being clean, yeah. which, yeah. yeah, we like a clean gin. We do. Not here for those dirty fuckers. <laughs> and that's the kind of quality content you get on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> You put that on a t-shirt. Not here for the dirty fuckers. Hope you enjoyed that little episode. You got to the end, so hopefully you did. (laughs) That's very true. Well done. If you'd like more content from us, you can follow us on Instagram. You can, and you'll also find our chief gin taster, the Gin Monkey, with tasting notes of all the gins that we're tasting in the series. Go on to Instagram, so it's worth following. Yeah, yeah. Topic gin. Topic gin. Same on Twitter. Same on Twitter. Send us a little tweet. Yeah, we're on Facebook too. Topic gin, keeping it all nice and simple. And you can email us. You can, if you want, at hello at ginandtopic.com. If you click subscribe as well, that would be really handy. Reviews, host tell of people. Stuff for you to do. And we'll be back next week with another episode. I know. And another guest. Okay. And another gin. Yay. <laughs> Just a quick reminder about our birthday giveaway. Write a review, send us a screenshot, and that bottle of Ironbark could be yours. <laughs>